Oh, man. Do you know how hard it is to do what Zach just did? Announcements are the hardest thing in the world to do. That's why I'm having Zach do them now. So I, you know. Well, hey, how goes it, guys? Uh, if you have your Bible, please turn to Judges chapter 7. You know, here's the thing. I, I don't have any Super Bowl jokes uh, this morning. I've had like, I feel like I've had a dozen people ask me about that. I, I, got, I got nothing. I mean, it was a busy week. I didn't have a chance to put together any Super Bowl humor. But uh, I heard that Tebow kid playing for the Broncos is hot, though. So uh, see what happens today with him. Um, well, man, turn to Judges 7. We've got a lot of work to do. If I go as long this week as I did last week, there, there will be no Super Bowl uh, in your future. So uh, we are going through our series called The God Who Redeems, which is basically this. Stories of God restoring his people for his glory. That's the big idea. And it's basically taking us through some of the classic stories of the Bible and pointing back to Christ, back to God as being the hero of all of the stories. Um, man, like a lot of you guys, or like some of you, I, I grew up in youth group. And uh, for me, uh, it, was, it was as far back as the 1980s, 1990s. So for some of you guys that are in your 20s and younger, that puts me at the age of like 96 right now. Um, but I had a, a youth pastor that really uh, sort of spoke into my life and really sort of pulled me in was a guy named Bill Corson. And he was just a great guy. He was a lay guy that, was, uh, that, that worked for uh, the local SWAT team. So he's, he's kind of this crazy guy that was you know, pretty aggressive, but had kind of a heart of gold. And he really just sort of dug into my life and uh, took us on all kinds of trips and, and just uh, events and really shaped me and some other guys uh, in terms of how we understood our faith in the gospel. One of the things that he always said that he communicated to us, which I thought was always interesting, it always stuck with me, is he always said, Ronnie, I'm a battlefield Christian. And I'd, I'd be like, well, you know, I don't, what does that mean, Bill? You know? And he's, he said, I, I just feel like I'm constantly on the battle with God. I feel like everything that's going on in my life, it's just like, it's attacking me. And I just feel like I'm constantly going before the Lord, and I'm asking him to intercede. I'm asking him to help me. He goes, but I always feel like I'm in uh, that place. Uh, and, and it just causes me to live life in a certain way before I'm just, I just feel weak and I feel helpless all the time. He said, I just feel like a battlefield Christian. And that really stuck with me um, because I felt like I was one of those two. And so it was great to hear my youth pastor tell me that, number one, hey, it's, it's okay to feel like, man, that you are just bracing yourself for the war all the time, the spiritual battles. It's okay to be in that particular place. In fact, and what we're going to learn this morning is that there's a problem if we're never in that place. And for many of us, we need to get to the place to where we're actually on the battlefield with God, so that we can see him work and move in our lives and pull us out of the level of fear and passivity that maybe is characterizing the place that we have sort of become complacent in. So when we look into the life of Gideon, we want to ask a couple of questions, and it's this, does God want us to win, or does God want to win us to something? In the case of Gideon, God was winning him to something. The problem in Gideon's life wasn't going to battle, as we're going to see today. It's that he hadn't already gone to battle. That was the issue with Gideon. God led Gideon to the battlefield because there was a stronghold over the Israelites that should have never been there. 
So for all of us, for you, think of something in your life that has gained a foothold that should have never been there in your life. Because we want to get to the place that God brought Gideon. Because the problem is, like Gideon, we've come to a place of complacency. And so the big idea this morning is simply this. God depletes our resources to prepare us for a battle that he has already won. That's the big idea. God depletes us, pulls our resources to prepare us to be on the battlefield for a battle that he has already taken victory for. And so when we go back to chapter 6 last week, what we see is, man, just God doing some crazy things with our boy Gideon, who was one of the judges, one of the early judges of Israel. He basically took a weakling in a wine press to a war and made him into a warrior who worshipped only God. All right? And so what Gideon shows is that we can obey God when we're weak because God works from his strength, not ours. So we can obey God even when we're weak. In actuality, our weakness, what we learned last week, is a canvas that God uses to rest his power on our life. And he does this all by grace. To destroy our idols and to redirect our worship back to him. And so that's kind of where we left off last week with Gideon when God pulled him from this weakling that was threshing wheat in this underground wine press, hiding out from an attacking nation that came in, pillaged the villages, stole all their food because they had gotten to a place as a nation that did not worship God anymore. They were out on that one. They had other idols. They had new idols. God takes Gideon, has him destroy the idols, and starts preparing him for the battle that we're going to see right now. So if you're in Judges 7... I'm just going to start reading. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon. Gideon was renamed this after he destroyed the idol of Baal. And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So now we're getting a little taste of where God is going with Gideon And the strategy, more the peculiar kind of strategy that God uses with his people. Verse 4. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon in verse 7, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets... And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. 
Verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah his servant to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. Verse 12, And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. So what he's trying to say is, there were a lot of guys. 13, when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all that camp. Verse 15, as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. This would have been right after they go to sleep when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshida toward Zerorah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. 24, then Gideon sent messengers throughout all of the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb they killed at the wine press of Zeb. We're going to get into some of the irony there in a minute. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. That is the inerrant, infallible word of God. So you want to picture the scene here that was just laid out for us in Judges 7. There are so many Midianites that you can't count them. They're like locusts is how it's described. And that's hyperbole, obviously, because everything can be counted. But the army is what we're seeing. The army of the Israelites is just painfully out of men. It's painfully low, but it was large enough 
ironically, that the Israelites would have become arrogant underdogs if they would have taken victory with that many men. Because remember, and this is what's key, remember, victory was already assured. At at no point did God come to Gideon and say, so here's the thing, if you win, if you wipe out the invading army, if the Midianites might still be standing after you're done, God goes after Gideon saying, so when victory happens, this is what happens. Victory was already assured. One of the things to take note of is that in the book of Deuteronomy, God had provided an allowance for those who were too afraid to fight when he was laying out his commands to the nation of Israel. So one of the commands was if you have men that are too afraid to fight, um, they're allowed to go home. Okay? So remember, at 32,000, you have 22,000 at, at, the, at the first, at the first uh, cut here, abandoning the army because they're that afraid. Because they've seen the Midianites on the other side of the valley, and they're that panicked. And they care so much about the rest of their nation and their fellow soldiers that 22,000 of them are, are out, man. They ditch, they ditch the party. And then God does the unthinkable, and he leans it out even further. So you got to understand the picture here is that 10,000 people was already a joke when you looked out on the Midianite army. It basically was nothing. I could use some Super Bowl thing here, but again, I didn't think of anything. But it was basically nothing. It was, ten, it was, a, it was a billion against 10,000, right? Um, and then what God does is he leans it out to 300 people. He does the unthinkable. And he does it by choosing those who lap the water from the river in a way that showed that they were prepared for the battle. And the imagery here is interesting. It's interesting. We don't want to miss some of the finer points of what's being said here. It's interesting in that it's almost like God baptized and separated the few that he had chosen to represent his salvation to the unbelieving world. And that's what God seems to do with the people that he chooses. We get from Ephesians before the foundation of the world to be his representatives and his ambassadors. He just grabs people. He doesn't need a lot. In fact, he likes to work with less. That's God's preferred methodology. I just want to take what's less. I want to, I want to take what most people would look at and go, really? That's your pick? That's the last guy on the bench pick that you consistently go back to? And God's like, yeah, I just kind of like that. I kind of like to roll with that kind of methodology. You notice, too, here, as we're reading through the story, that Gideon has no say in what he thinks is an appropriate-sized army. Does he? He has no say in what he thinks is an appropriately sized army or a good time to attack or in offering God some strategies. That's not what Gideon does. All Gideon does is obey what God tells him to do. And in fact, the only time God speaks, the only time Gideon speaks back to God is to confess his fears and his doubts. Isn't that so interesting? That the only time God, Gideon tries to give God any advice is when he doesn't try to give God any advice. But he just comes before the Lord with his fears, with his doubts. We saw that in chapter 6. With the things that he's struggling with. And he's honest as he comes before the Lord. Because he knows what he's facing. And he's scared. You guys ever get scared because you're facing something that you feel like is outnumbering you and is beyond you? Like none of you guys raise your hand when I say that? That's unbelievable. Thank you, Susan Grassy. Always depend on Grassy. I appreciate that. 
So then what we see in verse 9 here is God gives Gideon another sign. He gives him another sign. One of the things that we understand about God from creation all the way until 2016 is that God shows grace and kindness with us. He's patient with us. He knows that there are things in your life that you believe are outnumbering you. And you know what? He cares about that. In verse 9, without even asking, God shows kindness and grace by sending Gideon and his servant Pura into the camp. In verse 19, he gets to the camp. He overhears a conversation happening between a Midianite soldier telling his comrade a dream about a barley cake rolling into camp and leveling a tent. Now, I mean, if you're like me, I mean, dreams can just get weird sometimes. You know, they can defy some common logic. I was telling my wife about a dream I had last night, and I'm like, as I'm trying to tell her the dream, I can tell, like, her eyes are glazing over. And, like, I, I thought it made sense. And as I keep going on and on with it, I'm like, you know, I just need to have some oatmeal because I don't, I don't even know where I'm going with this. So I just gave it up. But in some providential prophetic moment, this soldier has this dream. And there's an irony with the dream, only because you think of a barley cake rolling down a hill and flattening a tent. It's absurd. It's like every dream I ever have, which doesn't make absolutely any sense at all. But a barley cake is something that Gideon, when he was threshing wheat in his wine press, that, that would have been one of the things that he ended up making after the wheat was threshed. And so there's, there's something really unusual with the dream that this man has and the fact that a, a cake, I'm thinking birthday cake because I'm 2016, you know, but like a birthday cake rolling down a hill and like hitting my house and the whole house just like flattening out, you know. I mean, granted, like, I, I love cake so much that that wouldn't be necessarily, like, a bad gig for me. You know, if you see a cake rolling towards me, I'm going to be like, yeah, you know, bring it, man. Like, I, I want that. But, um, so, but, but the imagery here is that a cake comes, it levels out the tent, and then the soldier's comrade says this in some sort of prophetic, providential moment. The soldier says, man, th- this is saying something. There's something prophetic about this. This can't be anything but God giving us to the sword of Gideon. And what's ironic about that is when Gideon, when Gideon receives this message, it encourages him so much that his only response is to worship God. And that's our response, isn't it? Our response when coming face to face with God's grace. When we can recount the moments in our life when God in his mercy has shown a level of grace to us that confounds us, our only response can be one of gratefulness and worship. And here's the thing, we want to be in that place. That's the place we want to be in. We want to be in this place that Gideon was in where we are recognizing that God is working and it causes us to worship him. In verse 15 God finally sends Gideon out. He sends Gideon out. And it's crazy what he sends Gideon out with. He not only sends him out with 300 dudes, but he doesn't really send him out with any great weapons either. I mean, this is how the mind of God works. And it should be encouraging because it's not how we think. And that will help us in those moments when we think God should think like us. I mean, do you think Gideon wanted some nicer provisions when God sent him out with a trumpet and a torch to go defeat the Midianite army that were so great you couldn't even count them? 
I mean, there's just some humor. There's, there's a little bit of humor in that. I mean, not if you're giddy and you think, oh, my gosh. But, I mean, just thinking about it and looking back on it for us, you just kind of go, I mean, is this funny or is this how God jokes with us? Is this kind of how, like, the, the way his humor is shaped with us? I don't know, but it's ridiculous, all right? And so he sends Gideon out with no provisions, right? Trumpet, torch, and some, some vocal prowess, if I can use that word right now in 2016. But what God really gives Gideon more than anything is a greater weapon than any sort of weapon or sword that might have given Gideon more confidence, and that was his word. God's word is what was Gideon's greatest weapon. When you think about it, and we should be thinking about it, would swords have mattered against an enemy with more swords than could be counted? I mean, would that have given Gideon more confidence? Oh, I got a sword now. There's 50 billion, and here's my 300 with our swords, you know? With our swords, you know, those plastic things that we're spearing our olives with today during the Super Bowl. I mean, is that really what's going to help us today? I don't think so. So in another twist of absurdity, God gives torches and trumpets to the army, right? Which they break and blow while shouting for the Lord and for Gideon. What's interesting is as we get to the end of the story here, the only swords we read about are the ones the Midianites used against one another. As they fled in confusion. Those were the swords that God actually used. Does God use swords? Yeah, he did here too. He used the swords of the enemy to flee and actually start combating against each other. So when God decided to use weapons that would have made his tribe and his people feel better, he actually did the opposite and he let the the enemy tribe use their swords to defeat themselves. It's amazing when you think about the way God works. Because nobody would set up that kind of strategy in their lives. And yet, it's what God does. Remember when we read in Hebrews about God's word being sharper than any two-edged sword. We read about that in Hebrews because it's true. Because Gideon had something sharper than a sword. He had God's word. He had God's assurance that this enemy was going to be Defeated. So then the army flees, and then the head of the Midianite prince Zeb is cut off. And not only that, but it was cut off at his own wine press. So it's just insane when you look at how God lined everything up. God completes his mission through Gideon. I mean, you got a guy who was hiding from the Midianites at his wine press to cutting off the head of the Midianite prince at his own wine press. God's word conquered not only the Midianites, but it also conquered Gideon's fears and lack of faith. God conquers all. And God conquers all enemies of truth. The psalm says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in what? Swords and guns? Politicians? No, it says we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. That's the weapon. That's the surety of our strength. And then in another moment of grace, at the end of it all, Gideon would witness the great things he had heard from the stories his fathers told him when the Lord did all the mighty works from years past. So God tends to bring things full circle in our lives. And a couple of the implications I want to look at with this is simply this. God leads us to the battlefield. God led Gideon to the battlefield. Here's three ways that God leads us to the battlefield. 
Number one, to show us that he fights for us and with us. God leads us to the battlefield to show us he fights for us and with us. Remember in chapter 6, Gideon challenged God. He said, hey, if you're for us, why are we being oppressed? He said, I've heard the stories of all the mighty works you did with my pops and all these grandparents upon grandparents upon grandfathers upon grandfathers. But where are you now is what Gideon said to God. And God showed him, in fact, that it was Gideon's fathers that had turned their back on him. Which is why he had them destroy their idols. And then he sends Gideon to the battlefield to show him the mighty works that he's faithful to perform for his people. You know, most of you assume that life will be a fight, don't you? And most of you in here assume that there are going to be fights in your life. I mean, unless you're still six years old, you're an idealist or a massive Joel Osteen fan, and we need to talk about that, all right? None of you believe that you will go through life with no valleys and no challenges. I, I, would, just, I would just harbor a guess that most of you don't think that it will never get hard and dark and difficult for you. What we forget is that God leads us to those places to show that he fights for us and with us. What did God keep showing Gideon time after time again, leading him into and then on the battlefield? He was showing Gideon that he wasn't alone. He's showing Gideon that he wasn't alone. How else would Gideon have known that if God hadn't put him on the front lines of an unwinnable battle? I mean, Gideon is just a poster child for underdogs, isn't he? I mean, his 300 army was a a literal fantasy league fail, if there ever was one, from top to bottom. There's no fixing that. There's no no having an army like that that can be clever enough to defeat an uncountable army. And what's interesting is that God wants you in this place. He wants you in this place. Did you think that God brought you to this church not to challenge you? Let me just pose some questions for us. Do you think God brought you here to not challenge you? I mean, we make this church as literally uncomfortable as possible. Do you think God brought you here to not challenge you? Do you think when you came to this church that there wasn't an area of your life that needed some work? That needed some sanctification? That needed some challenging? Do you think your theology didn't and doesn't need challenging? It did and it still does. So does mine. Do you think your heart was going after all the right things when you stepped through those doors for the first time? Was everything being handled well in your life? Like, you don't even know what you're doing here. Everything's so great. Why am I here? Was it all going so well for you? Can I ask that? I just did. Relationships, parenting, finances, career, school. What about some of the other stuff that doesn't get as much play? What about your sense of loss? What about your worry? What about your anxiety? What about your rest or your lack thereof? Were those things that didn't need any challenging or any work or any grace from God? If the church has felt like a battlefield, remember that it was God who led you here because we don't do any marketing at all. 
You're here because God brought you here to do a work in your life, within this moment, within the age and the era that you live in, that he wants to do. Because there's idols there that need to be killed dead. So God leads us to the battlefield to show us he fights for us and with us. He does that through his word. He does that with each other. It's an encouraging thing too. God leads us to the battlefield to remind us that a battle needs to be fought. I mean, Gideon had been avoiding a battle that needed to be fought against his enemies. We think the worst thing in the world is when we're in the middle of mayhem in our life, but God sees it differently, doesn't he? We see here that God sees it very, very differently in our lives. And here's something to consider. He could have wiped out the Midianites without Gideon, right? Why didn't he do that? Why did he use Gideon? Was that army too vast for the Lord? No. You can point to other places in Scripture where he just wiped out an army, wiped out a a group of people without any help from anybody. Why? Why why did he use Gideon? I mean, would that that have been easier for him? Well, for Gideon, it, it would have been, but it wouldn't have taught Israel how to be courageous and strong in the Lord again. That's what it wouldn't have taught Israel. It's like when we do everything for our kids. Are you one of those parents that like, man, just don't want to see the kids struggle? You know, that's okay. Let me help you. Let me do it for you. Here's a confession. Man, growing up, my dad, he just kind of did everything for us kids. Most specifically, one of the specific things he did was he used to work on cars a lot. And uh, he never invited me to come under the hood and learn how to, to do any repairs. I never learned how to do anything, you know, on a car, under the hood of a car, the engine of a car. I don't even know what I'm saying right now because it's like I've never done it. Do cars have engines? I don't know. Like, I was never there with him to, like, open the hood and see if it's like Flintstones and we use our feet. I mean, I don't know, you know. That's kind of what happened, and which is why Scott Long is going to get every penny I earn when something goes wrong with my car for the rest of my life. You know, there's an issue there, right? I have issues I'm struggling with in that. There are battles that need to be fought in our lives that God is allowing us to fight so that he can build us into completed people. Was it okay that Gideon had become this fearful, idol-worshiping weakling? No. That wasn't a completed people. That is not what God had for his people. James 1 says, God tests our faith to produce steadfastness. And that we should let steadfastness have its full effect so that we might be perfect and complete. We're not going to experience that perfection until we're with Christ. But so that we're on our way, we're on a journey toward perfection and completeness, lacking in nothing. So that's how we define sanctification, is this road, this steadfast road towards God shaping us and changing us and producing a completedness that's aiming towards a perfection someday when we're with Him. I mean, do you know that God wants you to be courageous? Has that ever struck you? That God wants you to have courage? He wants you to have heart? He wants you to be brave? I mean, that's a godly trait. Those are godly traits. He wants you to have courage. He doesn't want you to be cocky. Cockiness is just arrogance and conceit. Courage is the ability to do something that frightens you. And many times after we destroy our idols, a battle awaits 
And God fills the hole left by our idols with his courage. So here's how I would encourage you right now. On the heels of that is this. Don't waste your, your dead idols. Don't waste your dead idols. A battle awaited Gideon after he destroyed his idols, and it was a battle that needed to be fought. Remember, God was doing an equally important battle in the hearts of Gideon and Israel as they battled physically with their enemies. For God, it's all the same thing. It's all towards completedness. It's all to redirect our worship. So God leads us to the battlefield to show us he fights for us and with us, to remind us that a battle needs to be fought. Number three, finally, to show us the greater battle that's been won. Don't, don't, let me, don't, don't let me say that and immediately you go to some obvious thing where you think you know what I'm going to say. Because it's the third point because it's the most important point. To show us the greater battle that's been won. What Gideon's victory reminded the people of was that God had already given them a victory that they had walked away from. God repeatedly, it says in chapter 6, he sent prophets to remind the Israelites that there was that time that he had delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians. He had given them that victory, that freedom. He had brought them into a new land that was theirs. And it was a victory that showed the might and the power and the majesty and the reliability and the awesome capabilities of the God that they served. And what this victory with the Midianites was going to do, it was going to bring the knowledge of that victory with the Egyptians back into the hearts of the Israelites. When God saved you, listen to what I'm saying here. When God saved you, it was a work of dramatic proportions that all of us can so easily forget. God leads us into battle to show us that a more significant victory was won for us on the cross by Christ. You think your greatest battles in life are, are different than this. You think the things that you are battling with are the most significant things in your life. And what we learn in Scripture is that there was one significant battle that was fought not by you, but for you, by Christ, for your salvation, His glory. That's the battle that was won. That's the battle that changes everything for us. Because here's what it's not. Here's the battles you're fighting that are not the significant battles. Listen to what I'm saying here. It's not attaining security. It's not keeping your job. It's not providing for your family. It's not finding your calling. It's not managing your disappointments. It's not securing your future. It's not staying healthy. It's not realizing your dreams. All of those things are good and godly things for us to pursue. Okay, don't hear me saying don't pursue those things. Because we do by default. But we think that those are the things that we pursue that are going to be what's going to change the significance of our lives. And they're not. They're not. God always says no. He says no. He's saying no right now. He's saying the greatest battle in your life was fought and won by Christ. And if you would live in the victory of that, 
All these other battles can be fought in the strength of that victory. That's what's going on here. When we live in the joy of that victory, I mean, did Gideon have any, what was Gideon worried about? Like we look at this story and we think, Gideon, you know, your victory was assured. God had some peculiar ways of getting you into it. He had some very strange strategies, but he told you from the beginning that it was locked, man. The victory was, it was rigged. Victory was rigged. I'm going to win this thing, and you're going to have to trust me in this. The victory was locked. And when we can live in the joy of the victory of Christ, what it does is it leads to perspective for us. It leads to mercy and to grace. It leads to Jesus. I mean, do you see the grace Gideon is shown as a weak and fearful idolater, as an under-resourced leader of God's army? Is his grace no less heavy on your heart and your life? It isn't. Because the same God that did that is the same God we've been singing to all morning. So finally, is God depleting your resources right now? What battle do you think he's preparing you for? Because remember, the most significant battle of your life is the one that Christ won at the cross, which is the victory that carries you through all other lesser battles. And so we want to pray. We want to pray not to be a warrior this morning. What good is that? You want to be a warrior to help fight those other insignificant battles of your life? God wasn't preparing Gideon to be a warrior. God was calling Gideon to be a worshiper and to come back to honoring and giving everything and all things to the God of Jacob. So this morning we want to pray to be worshipers of the warrior who defeated all things, who defeated death so that we could know him so that we could love him, so that we could be assured of the grace that we have in the battles that we will fight in this life. Amen? Lord, thank you for being the warrior that has accomplished what we can't accomplish on any of the battlefields of this life. Lord, thanks for this great reminder. You came to Gideon. He's somebody that we can we can relate to so well. He was so afraid. He didn't exhibit many giftings. He didn't exhibit many talents. But Lord, you came to him. You pulled him out of the pit. Lord, you went before him. You walked alongside of him. You fought for him and with him. Lord, you brought him to this battlefield, Lord, so that he could be reminded that victory comes from the Lord. Lord, you brought him to the battlefield to show him the greater battle that had already been won. Lord, help us to remember that. Lord, give us the memory of what it is that you did on the cross this week so that when we find ourselves engaging in these lesser battles, but significant battles were always brought back to the most significant battle that you have won for us so that we can fight these 
with you. And you can fight them for us because we will now have a strength that is not our own, which is the only strength that can defeat any of the things that come pushing against us in our lives. So Lord, show us your grace. Thank you for your grace. Continue to shower this church with your mercy and your love and your favor. Thank you for doing everything that you've done up to this point. We're grateful to you. You are our God and our Redeemer. We ask all these things in your name, God's people said. Amen.